Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Paul Frank. Today I'll be discussing Case 2, Knee Replacement, from our textbook, Anesthesiology and Critical Care Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. Our patient is a 75-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis and limited neck range of motion that required a videolaryngoscopic intubation in the past. She is scheduled for a total knee arthroplasty, a knee replacement. Her vital signs are normal. What are the anesthetic options for this patient undergoing knee replacement? She could safely undergo the operation under general endotracheal anesthesia with or without a regional nerve block for postoperative pain control. Alternatively, she could safely and comfortably undergo the operation under neuraxial anesthesia with or without a regional nerve block. Most commonly, the neuraxial anesthetic used for this case is a single-shot spinal injection, although an epidural catheter can also be considered. In this case of neuraxial anesthesia, Sedation is usually added for patient comfort, something like a propofol infusion. What are the anesthetic concerns for a patient with rheumatoid arthritis? Patients with rheumatoid arthritis can have limited range of motion of their jaw and their neck, making airway management more difficult. Additionally, they are at risk for atlantoaxial instability caused by weakness of the transverse ligament. Ordinarily, the transverse ligament holds the odontoid process of the C2 vertebra firmly against the anterior arch of the C1 vertebra. This prevents it from sliding posteriorly and compressing the spinal cord. In patients with atlantoaxial instability caused by laxity of the transverse ligament, the odontoid process of the C2 vertebra can slide posteriorly and compress the spinal cord during laryngoscopy, and this can result in compression of the cord and neurologic symptoms. What are the advantages of spinal anesthesia over general endotracheal anesthesia? Spinal anesthesia allows the patient to safely and comfortably undergo the operation without requiring endotracheal intubation. This is particularly beneficial in patients who have had a history of challenging intubation in the past and who are at risk of complications from laryngoscopy. Additionally, avoiding intubation avoids the use of neuromuscular blockade which prevents the risk of the dreaded paralyzed but aware scenario. Additionally, neuraxial anesthesia has been shown to have decreased rates of mortality, deep venous thrombosis, blood transfusion, and pulmonary complications. Finally, depending on the level of sedation that is added for patient comfort, spinal anesthesia allows for continuous assessment of neurologic function throughout the operation. What are the risks of spinal anesthesia? Placement of spinal anesthesia can result in hypotension, which can cause nausea and vomiting, and it can also cause urinary retention. Placement of a spinal anesthetic requires violation of the dura, which can result in a postdural puncture headache. Additionally, there is a risk that the spinal will be ineffective and you will have to convert to general endotracheal anesthesia during the operation, which can disrupt the flow of the operation and even violate the sterile field. Additionally, placement of neuraxial anesthesia carries the risk of infection, hematoma, and spinal cord ischemia, all of which can lead to paralysis. And there's also a risk of what's known as a total spinal, where the dose of spinal anesthetic travels up to the brainstem and causes total neurologic and cardiovascular collapse. What are the contraindications to spinal anesthesia? 
Spinal anesthetic should not be administered if there is an infection of the skin or the soft tissue over the proposed injection site. Patients with an allergy to local anesthetic should not receive spinal anesthesia. If a patient has had spinal hardware placed near the injection site, that is a relative contraindication. Patients with elevated intracranial pressure or coagulopathy, whether iatrogenic or pathologic, should also not undergo spinal anesthetic placement. Patients with sepsis, hypovolemia, or a fixed cardiac output state such as aortic stenosis are likely to develop severe worsened hemodynamic instability after spinal anesthetic placement, and it should be avoided in these patients. Finally, patients with demyelinating neurologic disease such as multiple sclerosis should not undergo spinal anesthetic placement. How is a spinal anesthetic placed? The midline approach is most common, and that's what I will describe here. After obtaining consent from the patient, position the patient sitting up, although this can be performed with the patient lateral if they are unable to sit up. Apply a sterile prep solution and a sterile drape to the patient's lower back. With one hand on each side of the patient, identify the patient's posterior superior iliac spines. These will correspond to their L45 interspace, and this is a good target for a spinal injection. Next, create a skin wheel in the L45 interspace with 1 or 2% lidocaine. Next, place the introducer needle through the skin wheel with a slight cephalad angle. Then, take the spinal needle with the stylet still through it and advance the needle through the introducer needle. You may feel a few pops as the spinal needle is advanced. Next, remove the stylet from the spinal needle. If you are in the subarachnoid space, clear cerebrospinal fluid, CSF, should return out of the spinal needle. Brace your non-dominant hand on the patient's back, holding the spinal needle very still. With your dominant hand, attach the syringe containing your spinal anesthetic dose to the spinal needle. If you aspirate in the syringe, you may appreciate a swirl as CSF mixes with the local anesthetic. Next, slowly inject the dose of spinal anesthetic. Finally, remove both your spinal and introducer needles and apply a dressing. While the spinal anesthetic will provide dense, effective surgical analgesia during the operation, it will not contribute much to postoperative pain control. This is where a regional nerve block is helpful. What are the options for lower extremity regional nerve block for this patient? Peripheral nerve blocks have been shown to decrease the length of hospital stay as well as rehabilitation and to decrease postoperative opioid requirements. For this patient undergoing knee replacement, a femoral or sciatic nerve block will cover the effective area but will also cause a motor blockade. Alternatively, the adductor canal block will provide analgesia to the surgical area without the dense motor blockade allowing for sooner mobility and rehabilitation. The adductor canal block is an excellent choice for this operation. How is an adductor canal nerve block placed? Placement of the adductor canal block and spinal anesthetic are uneventful, and the surgery begins. The surgeon asks you to inflate the tourniquet that has been placed around the patient's thigh. How much pressure should be applied to the tourniquet? For a tourniquet around the patient's leg, inflation is usually to 250 to 300 millimeters of mercury. For a tourniquet around the patient's arm, inflation pressure is usually 200 to 250 millimeters of mercury. Alternatively, the inflation pressure can be adjusted based on the patient's blood pressure, and in this case it should be 100 millimeters of mercury greater than the patient's systolic blood pressure. The surgeon wants to let the intern get some practice operating. How long can the tourniquet stay inflated? 
There are no strict guidelines, but it is generally recommended for tourniquet time to last less than three hours. After two or two and a half hours, it is recommended to release the tourniquet for 10 minutes every hour to reduce the risk of ischemic damage to the limb. 110 minutes after the tourniquet was inflated, the surgeon is ready for you to deflate it. What changes should you expect with deflation of the tourniquet? Well, it is important to remember that while the tourniquet is inflated, tissues distal to the tourniquet do not receive any blood flow. This results in accumulation of ischemic metabolites such as lactate and adenosine diphosphate, ADP. Deflating the tourniquet allows these ischemic metabolites to be washed back into the central circulation. Release of the tourniquet results in many hemodynamic changes, including a decrease in preload, decrease in afterload, decrease in cardiac contractility, a decrease in mean arterial blood pressure. It also results in a drop in body temperature as cold ischemic blood enters the central circulation. There is also an increase in potassium and lactate, as well as an increased risk of cardiac arrhythmias after the tourniquet is deflated. As the surgeon is hammering in the prosthesis, you smell a pungent glue-like odor. Suddenly, the blood pressure drops to 52 over 34 millimeters of mercury, and the patient's oxygen saturation drops to 60%. What's going on? These findings are concerning for bone cement implantation syndrome, also called cement embolism. Hammering in of a prosthesis using cement creates high intramedullary canal pressures. This allows intramedullary fat and or cement to enter the systemic circulation and ultimately travel to the lungs. This can manifest with systemic hypotension, pulmonary hypertension, hypoxemia, even cardiogenic shock, right ventricular failure, and cardiac arrest. What should you do now? Intubate the patient and ventilate with 100% FiO2. Turn off all anesthetic agents. Support the patient's hemodynamics with vasopressors and inotropes. Secure large-bore intravenous access. Place an arterial line. Call for intraoperative transthoracic or transesophageal echocardiogram. Echocardiography will allow you to quickly assess the systolic function and filling status of both ventricles, as well as rule out pericardial effusion. In our patient, transthoracic echocardiogram shows akinesis of the free wall of the right ventricle, but normal motion of the apex of the right ventricle. What's going on? This is known as McConnell sign, and it is consistent with right ventricular strain, as can be seen with bone cement implantation syndrome or other cause of pulmonary embolism. Assuming cement embolism is the etiology of the patient's hypotension, what other findings would you expect on transthoracic echocardiography? We would expect a dilated right ventricle with reduced systolic function. We would expect a significant tricuspid regurgitant jet with a peak velocity greater than 2.8 meters per second. Additionally, in the parasternal short axis view, we would expect flattening of the interventricular septum. In the parasternal short axis view on transthoracic echocardiography, the left ventricle ordinarily appears as a circle and the right ventricle appears as a crescent. As the right ventricle is stressed with either volume or pressure overload, the interventricular septum moves towards the left ventricle, and in this case the left ventricle will appear as a capital D instead of a circle. Beyond the pearls. Down syndrome, achondroplasia, Osteogenesis imperfecta, neurofibromatosis, and lupus are also associated with atlantoaxial instability. 
The femoral nerve arises from the L2 through L4 spinal nerves. It provides sensation to the anterior thigh and to the medial calf as the saphenous nerve. It also provides motor innervation to the muscles of the anterior thigh, such as the quadriceps. The sciatic nerve is the largest nerve in the body and arises from the L4 through S3 spinal nerves. The sciatic nerve bifurcates into the tibial and common fibular nerves just above the knee. The sciatic nerve provides sensation to the posterior thigh and to the leg below the knee except for the medial calf. The sciatic nerve also provides motor innervation to the posterior compartment of the thigh such as the hamstring muscles and all of the leg muscles below the knee. If you'd like to learn more about this and other topics, read our book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis. <laughs>